Now we're recording. Uh, so, A, I will indeed still try to get the recording from last week. And yes, I did totally forget it. So, what are you going to do? Um, I remembered it long enough to write y'all an email about it. Whatever. Um, but we're going to we're going to pick up in chapter nine. I'm going to start with with verse six. We've been talking about faith versus the law all through this. Really, faith versus the law. That's the theme of the book of Romans. We've been talking about those who grew up on the law. Who are who? The Jews. And so we have a core of Jewish Christians. The churches in those days typically were started by an evangelist. We know Paul and uh, Barnabas were among the leading of those, going into a synagogue and uh, proclaiming the gospel, showing them from the Old Testament scriptures, the truth of the gospel, and then moving forward. Um, But then they would say something like, and oh, by the way, the covenant with our father Abraham was always for the nations as well, and so is the Messiah. And then people would try to kill them, hound them across Turkey, what we, what we would call Turkey, and so forth. Um, so we have this core of Jewish believers, but because they understood the gospel was for everyone, we also had a very, very large and growing number of Gentiles. Probably in the Church of Rome at this time, the number of Gentile Christians far outweighed the number of Jewish Christians. Uh, we don't really know. We don't have the census. But just judging by the number of people in each group that were there, um, that is extremely likely. And, and as that happened, as this faith became more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish in people's minds, uh, there arose some problems with that. Um, and so... How do we deal with that? And in, in Romans, all through that, and what we've covered so far, and continuing, and it's not going to stop yet, um, Paul's just constantly pulling the Gentiles in, pulling the Jews in, pulling the Gentiles in, pulling the Jews in, and helping them to understand that uh, there's only one church. Um, he's going to use in a passage that we're going to hopefully get to today um, the, the imagery of a vine. And, yeah, some branches were trimmed off, and some others grafted in. Um, And then he says, don't get cocky, because if they were trimmed off, then so can you be. And a pretty important thing for us to keep in mind. Okay, so let's pick it up in the sixth chapter, or excuse me, the ninth chapter, but the sixth verse. And I'm going to carry a fair amount of this through, because we digested a lot of it last week. And a lot of this is simply stating then these things uh, anew. If there are questions um, that, that we need to answer that have come up before or since last week, by all means, bring those up. Um, and then when we get through the ninth and 10th chapters, um, Lord willing, we'll dive into the 11th tonight still, and then I will stop and say, now, for the 11th chapter... Do you have questions you want us to focus on, words you want us to focus on, etc.? Um, the only one that we didn't cover from last week is this one. Question 8 on the study guide for chapters 9 and 10. Um, what does all of what we've been looking at have to say about Christians and Jews today? So 
we'll cover some of this, and then we're going to come back and look at that question in light of what we're looking at. We're all together? Cool. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, we covered that last week. That led into a, another big discussion. Not all Israel is from Israel, because who else is Israel that is not, shall we say, genetically Israel? Who else is Israel? Well, Israel is still Israel. But Gentiles. Gentiles. Faith. It's about those who come in faith. And so throughout this, basically, you're going to see this. Paul is saying Israel and the Abrahamic covenant is about faith. Always has been. Not new. So those within Israel who reject faith, reject the covenant, and they're not really Israel. Spiritually, they're not Israel. Spiritually, they're not part of the covenant. On the other hand, these others like all the Gentile people who accept faith and who uh, have a relationship with Jesus as Jesus himself outlined through faith, these people are Israel. They're part of the Abrahamic covenant. They are children of Abraham as much as anybody else is because it has never been about DNA. And that's the thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves all the way back in the Old Testament. You know, they were commanded to destroy all the Canaanites. Then how come some of the Canaanites are in Jesus' family tree? What's the explanation? The explanation is it was never about DNA. Canaanite was about faith. And they were to be destroyed because they were going to try to bring Israel away from their faith in God and to a faith in their idols, which, by the way, they did. Uh, very effectively, did exactly what God said was going to happen. Um, but those who rejected the idols and rejected the pagan beliefs and followed God and worshipped God became Israel. Because that's what it means. So he's simply restating something that even the Old Testament makes pretty clear. So he says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. We talked about Isaac being the child of Abraham that was a child of faith as opposed to the child of work, who was Ishmael, Isaac's older brother. Spent a fair amount of time on that. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded, are regarded as descendants. The children of the flesh, meaning fleshly, genetic Israel. Now, of course, they would have used terms like genetic or DNA then because they didn't know about that, but they certainly understood bloodline. And that's, that's not what we're talking about. Never has been, he says. For, the, for this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, once again, why are all of a sudden we're back to Abraham and Sarah? Because the, the covenant was made based on faith. And it was faith that God was going to do what he promised. Namely, give Abraham the inheritance, if you will, of all of this, these descendants. And that the world itself would be blessed through his descendants. 
But that was going to be based on what God did, not what Abraham did. So when Abraham decided to short-circuit it and have a baby with Hagar, God rejected Ishmael. Was that a judgment against Ishmael? No. God said, I will make him a great nation. But he isn't the one. He's not what I was talking about. That's not the way I told you to do it. Um, and he calls Abraham back to faith. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. By the way, what does hated mean? It's almost a trick question, but not quite. actually mean what we say hate um, but the, the bottom line is it means he's, he's not recognizing him he's not, he's not going to honor him he's, he's not regarding him the same way he regarded uh, Jacob why? because he wasn't part of the plan now did it mean he hated him in the sense that he made Esau his enemy and made it his business to destroy Esau is that not what we think of when we hear the word hate so the English word hate is a bit iffy there, um, and that's a problem. But no, he, he's not meaning that. He didn't do that, in fact, historically. Once again, Esau was also the father of many, many, many descendants of great nations. So um, Esau was blessed by God, but not given part of the covenant. The covenant, he said, will go to Jacob. And if I understand what he's saying there correctly, the point of it was quite simple. We're doing this my way. That's what God is saying. Why through Jacob instead of Esau? Because God said so. There really isn't another reason. God could have used Esau if he wanted to. God is sovereign. That's the point. It's not about human traditions. It's not about the way we do things. It's going to be the way God does things. And that was true for Abraham, that was true for Isaac, that's true now for Jacob, as he's going to find out. And with all of the patriarchs, if you read through Genesis, you find they were very much of their world. They thought very much like people of their world, and God kept calling them back and reminding them, wait a minute, what did I tell you before? What did I do for you before? Look how long it took Abraham to actually develop the faith that he was later known for. I mean, the, the man was almost totally faithless most of the time we read about him. But he did get there. Which is a beautiful thing, because what it also says is God's pretty patient with us in all of this. What then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, 
and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. By the way, how did Pharaoh get hardened? It's an interesting side note. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He did that. He wouldn't believe. He, well, he did that, but... But it didn't last. <laughs> but it did not. So Pharaoh would say, no, 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 no. And then new plague. And Pharaoh would say, well, okay. And then God would relent. Okay? So here's Pharaoh who, and when we say believe, um, what does believe mean? Well, he certainly accepted the reality. I'm not real sure trust really entered into it. It was more resignation and surrender. But he did believe in that sense, and God backed off the plague. And then what happened when God backed off the plague? He said, no, no, no. Pharaoh's heart was hardened against the people of Israel. And here we go again. And he did that all the way through that whole series of plagues until the final one when Pharaoh lost his own son. And then Pharaoh gets on the chariots, and I mean, he finally says, okay, go, 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 go. And once again, his, his heart is softened, and God relents. And when he relents, every single time God stopped striving with him, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It was not God saying, you will be hard, or making it. It was God saying, okay, I'm going to back off this. And as soon as he did that, every time, Pharaoh basically said, okay, then I don't need to do this. I can do what I want to do. Culminating in the final, I'll do what I want to do, which was to chase down the people of Israel, uh, whom he had, with his blessing, sent away. He even gave them gold and things like that. Um, Try to chase them down with his armies. And by the way, his armies at the time were somewhat well known. Um, but they didn't do real well in, uh, well, underwater. So the parting of the, it, it really is Sea of Reeds, in all likelihood, as opposed to the Red Sea. Uh, nevertheless, it was still a parting of water. I mean, it doesn't change anything about the, the miracle. Israel gets across. It's, by the way, somewhat miraculous that he, they got across anyway. If you've ever been on the bottom of a sea, what is it like? Yeah, it's really gooey. So you have all these people going through. I mean, the water just piles up, goes away instantaneously. Uh, another miracle that is not really recognized is they actually walked on that surface. That was not possible, but they did, and they got across. And then Pharaoh and his chariots went in. Also, interestingly enough, just a bit miraculous, because that chariot, the first chariot should have mired in very quickly and sent a signal to everybody. But they were allowed to get far enough that when God let the waters loose, they were gone. The entire Egyptian army wiped out. Why? Because Pharaoh said, Well, that's true. God, God did not do it capriciously or because he just hated Pharaoh. But the reason they interfere with God's plan is because Pharaoh said, okay, pressure's off. We can do this now. goes all the way back to Romans 1. How is it that those people got to the point where 
they, they no longer could tell good from evil and therefore could not repent because in their mind, evil was good and good was evil. It says God gave them up to it. God backed off. The worst punishment that can happen to someone is God saying, okay, you want it that way, you got it. I'll just back off then. And when he does that, our hearts are hardened. So when you find God wrestling with you, when you find God um, slapping you upside the head, <laughs> he's done that with me many times. According to Hebrews 12, that is a sign that God loves you, that he will not leave you where you are, that he is invested in righteousness and peace being the foundation of your life. But when he stops doing that, now you worry. By the way, it's okay to get a break. I pray for breaks. Lord, can it be recess? <laughs> can we back off the education for just a little while? Um, but, but it's going to come back. And if we believe what we say we believe, then that's a good thing. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing that molded, the thing molded, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Well, unfortunately, the answer today is, well, yeah, I guess exactly what they say. Um, and Paul's basically saying that makes no sense. You, you, you seem to not understand who you are. Pots don't complain to the potter. But they did, and they still do. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Honorable use might be what? Give me an example. I remember a famous uh, uh, sermon by Stephen on this. A few of you were here at that time. Um, honorable would be, the most honorable would be for use in the temple. A little less honorable would be for use in uh, somebody's kitchen or for serving um, honored guests. What would common use be? Chamber pot, exactly. Believe it or not, we actually had one as an illustration one day when Stephen was preaching on this passage, and Stephen illustrated the use of chamber pot. It is burned into my memory. Because <laughs> he and I talked about it as he was planning the sermon, and I said, it would be really cool if you could show people what it is and just explain. You know, this is meaningful. It's, it was everyday use for them. We don't know about that. I did not suggest that he illustrate <laughs> the use of it. But boy, did it get attention. <laughs> So what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, 
there they shall be called sons of the living God. So once again, knowing the background now, we're hearing that, bringing, now we're bringing the Gentiles back in and reminding the Gentiles this is what happens. But it's also reminding the Jews, this is what happens when you don't have faith. This is what happens when you choose Ishmael over Isaac. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Through the number of the sons of Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Listen to that closely, because it defies most contemporary American theology. The number is like the sand of the sea, which, by the way, is simply a figure of speech, meaning a whole thinking lot. You ever, I mean, just, just I dare you sometimes to just get a bucket of sand and start counting grains. Just a bucket. You'll never finish it. You'll never finish it. And that's just a bucket. But it is the remnant, meaning a small part that God saved apart for himself, that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us to a, left to us a posterity, he would have become we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And of course, what happened? Not necessarily the reason, but what was the result of God's intervention with Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, they were leveled. They don't exist. So it wasn't just destruction; even it was. Extreme destruction. And God, I mean, thoroughly, he says, Isaiah says. Now, by the way, it is also not unimportant that he's saying all of this from the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, of course, is Scripture, and he's backing it up with Scripture, which is not a bad thing to do. But who of those peoples that he's writing this to in the church would this relate to? Yeah, they were the ones who understood the prophecies of the Old Testament. So while he's encouraging the Gentiles and explaining that the Gentiles are indeed uh, part of the body now, part of the covenant, he's saying it in such a way that it has the most meaning to the Jews. The Gentiles, by and large, did not have that background unless one of the Jews had taught them. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. In other words, they were pursuing it, they didn't get it. Why? Because they didn't pursue it in faith, or by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Who is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense? Jesus. It's a bit of a takeoff of the cornerstone thing. It's a little bit different. Cornerstone is a very specific uh, illustration that anybody who had construction experience at the time would understand immediately. And most of them did, because they built their own stuff. But now, it's, it's a stumbling stone. What's a stumbling stone? Something that you don't see, you trip and you fall because it's there. 
it gives offense to you. You you want to pick it up and throw it off of the of the trail, but and that's what they wanted to do. But they didn't get to do that, and so there was a stumbling stone in Zion. Zion is what? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's very specific part of Israel. In in figuratively, it becomes known as Israel, but specific place. What? It's, even more so, it's the mountain. The mount, not really a mountain by our standards, but the mount that the temple was built on. So you have Mount Zion versus Mount Sinai in Scripture. Zion standing for faith. Sinai, where the law was given, standing for the law. And so when, when Zion is used here, it is not just of Israel, but it is um, it is Jerusalem itself, it is the place of the temple, uh, it, is, it is rich with all of this uh, symbolism. And right smack in the middle of it is this stone of offense. Okay. Now, again, remember that Paul did not take breaks and then start new chapters. We are about to, but Paul did not. So, chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. For them? For back to Zion, because, yeah, we're talking Jerusalem, we're talking Israel, is for their salvation. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, this is an interesting one, because, and I think I asked you to look this one up. Yes, I did. Knowledge. What is that word? Did anybody look up the word? Happy what? Happy gnosis? I like to put the hard G in there. Happy gnosis. Come on, it's a G there, and we have no idea how they said it, so I get to put my G in. Or, as Greeks would say today, epionosko, or epionosis. Now, what exactly is that? Gnosis is knowledge. So what is epi-gnosis? So far, but not far enough yet. Okay. So it is a close experiential knowledge. It is a intimate knowledge. It was a, a word used as a euphemism for sex, a, a term we might use uh, carnal knowledge. Um, Epionosco is to know intimately, relationally. So he didn't just say that what they were doing was not in accordance with an understanding of reality. That would just be Yenosko or Yenosis. It was not in accordance with an intimate relationship with God, which, by the way, they claimed, remember. They claimed God as not just Pater, Father, but Abba, Dad, personal, intimate. And Paul says, you missed that one. 
so they had a zeal, there's no question. But it was their zeal. It wasn't a zeal that came from a relationship with God. It was a zeal that came out of themselves for themselves. What did they want the Messiah for? from the Romans. Not to save them from their sin. Not to restore a relationship with God that they had broken with their sin. But to give them worldly political power. Worldly military power. It was about them, their goals, their agenda. Not God's. And that's a problem. I had a talk with somebody about that an hour ago. That... that uh, I talked with a, a, a couple of people who I made a deal with that I'm going to do something for them and in return they give me an hour to sit down and share the gospel with them. Hey, I get my shot. Because they've grown up with people telling them all about the gospel and they don't have a clue what the gospel is. Because it's, it, it's all these different agendas that different denominations have or different people have and, and people inherently know this is nonsense. So what it does is it's like a, a, a vaccine. It inoculates them against the gospel. There's just enough truth in there to make them think that anybody talking about the gospel at all is lying to them again or is self-centered. So they don't hear about the gospel because they think that's what they've heard. When in reality, they've heard something very different because what they've heard is not according to knowledge not according to a relationship with Jesus. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end, the goal. Christ is what the, the law is about. It is, the law was not there to be self-sufficient. It was there to point to Christ. Now, again, Paul wrote this in Greek. It is a little ironic that we almost never translate that word into English. It's a Greek word. The rest of the Greek words are translated, but not that one. So what does Christ mean? The Messiah? Well, okay, that's the Aramaic word. And so, yeah, the one they were waiting for was the Messiah. The law was to to bring the Messiah, and the Messiah is the goal of the law. But you, you said the anointed, that's the English word. So Messiah means the anointed, which also meant the chosen, because anointing was the way of choosing. This is not the word for anointment if you were rubbing uh, oil on uh, somebody's scalp to ease sunburn or something like that. Uh, it's not the medicinal anointment. It was a ceremonial anointment to say, this is God's chosen. It was done for prophets. It was done for priests. It was done for the king. And, of course, Jesus was all of those. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we're preaching. In other words, listen to what we're telling, what we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, for with the heart a person believes, 
resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Okay, stop there at, at verse 10. Uh, we've talked about the Roman road, road before. Can anybody remember the first part of the Roman road? Okay, and what does that say? Nope, you're right. You started right and doubted yourself. All of sin. Okay, so all of sin, and then 623, which is okay. The wages of sin is death, and then 81. Remember, this is part what came right after Paul goes through this very emotional. Uh, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. I am a wretch. Who's going to save me? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, how exactly does that happen? 10, 9. If we confess, if we believe in our heart and confess in our, with our mouth. Okay? Now, be careful. Be very careful. What does the word believe mean? What does the word faith mean? What? Trust. Trust. There's one of the parts. And then obedience. Okay, obedience or faithfulness is another one. And then the first one, which we tend to assume, is accepting the truth, accepting the reality. Now, what I have found in the last 40-some years, um, when I came to the Lord, somebody said, raise your hand if you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, you're saved. Now, what does James say about that? Yeah, the demons could have been sitting there raising their hands. Come on. So, no, that's not enough. And when he says, all you have to do is believe in your heart, because I was taught that. All you have to do is believe, and you're saved. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live, because it's not about your works. That is half-truth. Because it's not about your works. You're absolutely correct. But we haven't gotten to faith yet either. Because faith involves trust and faithfulness. So when you believe in your heart, it's not part of that, it's all of that. And then you confess with your mouth. The confessor of mouth is pretty important because people could be killed back then for confessing with their mouth. And Paul just says, you know, what that does is make sure that everybody understands who you are and it results in salvation. Now, does confessing with your mouth save you? Trick question. Does believing save you? What saves you? Does faith save you? Yeah, I said trick question. In fairness. No, Jesus saves us. When someone says, okay, so when do you believe someone's saved? There's only one good answer to that. The answer is, on the cross. And then we just wiped out two-thirds of theological issues that exist between denominations who actually believe the Bible. The ones that don't believe the Bible, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do with them. But for the others, we just got rid of most of the problems. If we simply quit trying to pretend we can judge God's, God's judgment and judge somebody's state of salvation or not, and simply say, no, we're saved on the cross. We're saved by Jesus. Faith 
is the means by which we accept that gift. But it's not the gift. The gift is Jesus. We don't believe in a proposition. We don't even trust in a promise. We believe in a person. And we trust in a person who made statements of truth and who made promises. Absolutely. But let's not, let's not reduce it to some sterile thing that's in writing. It's as, as much as I, I think everybody here knows, I've dedicated my life to studying and teaching the Word of God. I believe in it. But the Word is about Jesus. That's the importance of it. If it wasn't about Jesus, then who cares? Jesus is the one who is king. He's the one our allegiance is to. He's who our faith is in. Okay. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Question eight. Now, what is the difference between Jew and Gentile today and the relationship between them based on what we just heard? Not a trick question, so you should be just jumping out with your answer. what he says, isn't it? There is no difference. So any theology that we've got that is built on there being some inherent difference is contradictory to Scripture. And the entire book of Romans, there is no difference. How can a Jew be saved? Can a Jew be saved? Larry thinks so. So how? Exactly the same way we are. That's the point of no difference. How can a Gentile be saved? Can a Gentile be saved? I think so. How? The same way. By Jesus, the gift, through faith. So when we're talking to Jews today, never ever accept a theology that says they don't need Christ because they're the chosen people. That is one of the most evil things I've ever heard. They need Christ as much as anybody else does. Without him, they are lost. Just like we are. That's not anti-Semitism. I actually got a, a call after a sermon where I said that. I got a call from the Anti-Defamation League one time. It was years ago. I have no idea where in the world this guy heard what I had said, because he certainly wasn't in the congregation. But I get a call from the Anti-Defamation League. You all know what that is? It's a Jewish civil rights group. And he was very upset with me for saying that Jews needed the gospel, and that Jews could not be saved without the gospel. And I said, have you read the book of Romans? He says, of course not. I'm Jewish. I said, okay. I'm not. I'm Christian. And Christianity teaches everyone needs to be saved. I'm not putting Jews down. 
everyone, that's me too, but that there's only one way that happens. And it has nothing to do with your DNA. So you may notice I'm kind of emphasizing this a lot, partly because that's what the Book of Romans is about, but partly because I see people today accepting a theology that says there's a whole group of people that we don't even need to share the gospel with. Let's not even bother. And that is, that's wrong. It is evil. If we said, uh, if they're Muslim, we're not going to share the gospel with them at all. How would you feel about that? No, we support missionaries to go over and do that. But I know people who will not support missionaries to the Jews because they think it's a waste of money. Never understood that. That's the answer to that question. Verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they heard without a preacher? What is a preacher? Well, there's, there's an answer. It is. It's also a bit circular. Someone what? Okay, a very old world word, but that's actually the best translation. Does anybody know what a herald is? You know, the, the, the concept of like a town crier. Somebody who would go out into a public place and on an official basis make announcements. Uh, they were kind of a human newspaper. That's the word. Charisma, the proclamation. So anybody who is out there being the proclaimer, that's the preacher, Okay. How will they preach or proclaim unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of of good tidings or things. Obviously, the first time I read that one was King James because I just slipped into tidings. Good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? Isaiah was one of those, right? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of, and by the way, how many times have we heard a word of God? Yeah. It's the word of Christ. And in fact, it's not the word of Christ in the sense that it's what Christ said. They can include that, of course. It's the word about Christ. It's a word about Messiah. God's chosen. But I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Well, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, it was, or I was found by those who didn't seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, so clearly he wasn't speaking of Israel there. Because, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, Israel's cooked, right? Well, not so fast. We just made it through chapter 10. So now, do we have any questions about Chapter 11. 
number Okay, question five, the remnant. Okay, Dean? Question 11, and what does that ask? Oh, shutting up. Okay. Uh, shut up in disobedience. Okay. Any others? to chapter 11, and once again, Paul did not take a break, even like we just did, uh, nor did he say, by the way, Israel is not cast away at the beginning of chapter 11. Where did I get that? Okay, a number of the New American Standard versions, see, not all of them have that, by the way. Depends on how, how much you pay. You have to pay a little bit extra to get that. That's true, because it's an expanded version. Um, they have these, these headings over the sections. And over uh, chapter 11, the NAS translators said, Israel is not cast away. Because, yeah, I just a little bit. Verse 21, as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So you're left with this if you decide you're just going to wait and not look at it for another month. But it's a letter for Pete's sake. He just wrote it. And the next sentence is, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? So he puts this, this rhetorical question. Remember who, who Paul is? He's, he's one of those people. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a uh, member of the tribe of Benjamin, which, by the way, was really hard to document then. Um, and he says, may it never be. I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what's the divine response to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I love that. Because Elijah is the prophet. There is no prophet in the nation of Israel's history more respected than Elijah. And so he complains to God. What does God do? You don't have a clue. You don't know what you're talking about. I've got thousands that I've kept. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 
But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, work, grace is no longer grace. The word grace means what? A gift. Gift. It means It's just a word for gift. There is another word for gift, by the way. This is emphasizing not the substance that is handed over, but the, the, the nature of the giving. So grace emphasizes this is free will, this is something I give to you with no strings attached. That's haris. Now, what he really just said then is, otherwise, a gift is not a gift any longer. That makes sense, right? If it's something that's done on the basis of what we do, it's not a gift, it's a payment. But it's not, because there's nothing we can do that does that. So, it's a gift. So now we've got this question about a remnant. The original reference, of course, was the, uh, a remnant, not of the people necessarily. Um, it's hard to tell what he was saying to, uh, to Elijah. He may have been saying people, or he may have been saying leaders, prophets. But the bottom line is, Isaiah says, they've all turned away. Do you remember the story? Do you remember the, the situation? The kings of Israel were ignoring God's prophets. They were worshipping Baal, among others. Um, one particular guy named Ahab. What was his wife's name? Jezebel. Anybody name your daughter Jezebel? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like Hitler. It's become synonymous with evil. And, and I, or Elijah, I want to say Isaiah, Elijah is fighting these guys. Has this famous showdown with the prophets of Baal where they, they go up on a hill and they offer sacrifices. And Elijah prays first. And Baal's people try to light their sacrifice. And it won't light. And Elijah's sitting back, and if you read the, the literal version of what he's saying, he's sitting back and saying, where's Baal? Is he on the toilet? Literally. That's what he said. I mean, you can't get much more disrespectful than that. And he did that on purpose. And then he called down from heaven fire, lightning, to light the sacrifice to Yahweh as a way of saying, no. Does anybody get what's going on here? Um, and they did get it. And perversely, what it did is result in them trying to kill him. Again. <laughs> it's not like it was the first time. They hated him because they stood for it doesn't have to be the old way. It doesn't have to be just Yahweh. Uh, we can have tolerance. Does that sound familiar? It's dangerous. It's dangerous. But Paul says it's in the same way there's a remnant in the present time. So now we're not talking about the people that God was telling Elijah about. There's a remnant in the present time. By definition, a remnant is a small portion. Right? A remnant, if you're, if you're uh, sewing. That's, that's where I hear remnant, because my wife sews, and she's teaching my granddaughters to. And 
So she's buying lots of remnants and they're stacking in her house. Um, and a remnant is a piece of cloth from a much bigger piece that's left over. And so you get it cheaper. And then you can go figure out what to do with it, right? So it's a, it's a small portion that's left over. What is then the remnant of the present day, meaning 2,000 years ago, that Paul is talking about in this context? Um, more information. Right so far, but more information. Pretty close to what she just said. Also, more information. Those who. And don't repeat what you said, because that's already accepted, but just need more. The, the, the Jews. Because there's all the Gentiles already. That's not the remnant he's talking about. There's people in the nation of Israel who are a remnant, who have not rejected the Messiah. So, when he, God has not rejected Israel. He has rejected lack of faith. So, if you're in Israel and you have faith, you're not rejected. Paul says, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm a Benjamite. But, what it does not say is, you get a pass on the, thing for, uh, the need for faith. Not a chance. Your question. You will find it. I think he's talking about this, but he's not talking about just this. Because it's not just Jews he's speaking of, it's people. Yeah. And, and here's the thing that we, especially in America, and especially, frankly, in Orange County, Orange County is the, like the, the headquarters of the megachurch in the U.S. It really is. It's kind of a fascinating thing. And there is a, there's a sort of assumption. Boy, do I have to be careful. <laughs> well, that's one of them. By no means the only. Um, Saddleback's probably the, well, I'm not even sure it's the largest in Orange County, but it's pretty close, if not the largest. Uh, nowhere near the largest in the country. But definitely the one that gets the most press, the one that's the best known. And there's an assumption with people who are involved in these churches that see, see, see how many people are coming, see how God, what God is doing in all of these people. And they kind of forget what Jesus said, that even with the churches, there's the sheep and there's the goats. So I don't care if you've got 10,000 people in an auditorium or you've got 100 people. The fact of the matter is that some of those belong to the Lord and some of them don't. And who knows who's who? He does. The whole point of and and and, and the whole point of the, the story about the sheep and the goat was Jesus warning people who thought they were sheep. 
you might want to look at your life because you're a goat. And the reason the warning is so good is because it wasn't a threat. It wasn't a dire prediction. It was a warning. You get to change. If you're a goat, you get to be a sheep if you want to. That was the point then. It's still the point now. But the idea that, you know, the majority of people are going to come to the Lord, Jesus himself said, no, it's not going to be that way. I wish it was. I think anybody who has any understanding of this would have to wish that it was true. But no, it's narrow. And few will find it. So it goes kind of contrary to the American success mindset, but it is very real. And we've got to keep our eyes on that because if we don't, we end up just becoming a meeting place for goats. Many of you know at, at North Orange we are right now, I spent hours on this myself yesterday, in the process of overstaffing, we know it's overstaffing, bringing somebody in on a pre-funded position to help us balance between what most people would call discipleship, mentoring, whatever, and actual evangelism. Because you can't make disciples out of people who don't know the Lord. You've got to bring them to the Lord first. We get that and we get we're not in balance. There's no one that would argue that here. But at the same time, as we're talking with people, one of the things that we're emphasizing is, look, it, it's not rocket science to fill seats. If we had wanted to stay on course that we were on 10 years ago, we would today easily be at 5,000, probably closer to 10. It's easy to do. It really is. There's formulas. I know people doing it by the formulas. But the problem is you're not necessarily making disciples. You're not necessarily bringing people to the Lord. You're filling seats. And many of us, including many people who had very large churches uh, in the last 10 years, have come to the realization that our ministries have basically become entertaining goats. And I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in spending what's left of my life entertaining goats. I want to reach goats. I want goats here. Because how else can I say to the goat, you get to be a sheep if you want to. But we're not about putting, forget the phrase, just putting butts in seats. Um, because we realize what Jesus said. And people have got to be sheep, not goats. So there's a balance there in our in our minds. But, Well, not only is it not true, it's demonstrably not true. The largest churches in the United States, the most successful in the eyes of the world, are churches who repudiate the gospel. Literally, repudiate the gospel. Why would they do that? Because they get more people. So if it's about filling the seats, like I said, it's not rocket science, but you don't do that by telling people they have to repent. 
Look at Jesus, how many times he had people come to him and saying, you know, I, I'm ready, I want to follow you. He says, really? Go away. Say, no, 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 I'm ready to follow you. Oh, follow you. Okay, tell you what you need to do then. Go sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. And then, come on. And what does it say about that guy he said that to? He walked away grieving because his wealth was so important to him. So, by the way, am I putting megachurches down? No. I am not their judge. They're, it's a different kind of ministry. I've been part of one. Uh, I spent 15 years of my life serving in one. And I do not regret that ministry in the least. But I will tell you, in terms of making disciples, North Orange Christian Church at our size is more effective than that church was. There's no doubt. So, you know, there's different approaches to ministry, and we simply said, no, we're not going to do the, the giant net and hope that the percentage is good in that giant net. Because if you talk to the senior ministers of any of these megachurches, not one of them is going to tell you everybody in there is a Christian. Of course not. And, and I have to believe that most of them, I know not all, because there's some who have come out and said otherwise, but most of them are truly interested in bringing people to the Lord. You, you singled out Saddleback. I don't doubt for a second that's what Rick Warren is trying to do. I don't have the same approach that he does. And he, he's not going to judge me, and I'm not going to judge him. So we've got to be careful about that, even as we make decisions about our own direction, what we will and will not do. I talked with a guy yesterday who, who's very much an evangelist and very, very interested in perhaps being a part of this church. And he says, so, so what happens if I come and we double in size in a year? I said, what do you mean, what happens? And he says, well, people are going to have a problem with that. I said, of course people are going to have a problem with it. We have to do something with those people. And, and the guy who's the gifted evangelist is the guy who says, I don't care, I don't worry about that. Because people like me say, I do care, and I do worry about it, and I'm going to have to figure out the logistics. Of course it's a problem. That does not mean it's not a good problem. <laughs> so, duh, you know. But at the same time, what we're not going to do is fill the seats, just to fill the seats, and become an organization whose mission is to entertain goats. We're not going to do that, period, ever. And there's things that we do that most people don't even understand. We had a long discussion about this in staff meeting this morning. Um, how many of you are aware that we're a pretty diverse congregation? A pretty diverse congregation. I mean, look around the room. Uh, we're diverse in, in many different ways, way more than the average church around here, which surprises me, but I keep hearing this report, and then I talk with others and find out it's true because this is a very diverse area, not just ethnically, socioeconomically, in terms of functioning, physical ability, all of these ways, age. But are you aware that the more diverse you are, the smaller you are? Show me a megachurch that's diverse. Saddleback. Willow Creek, the two most famous megachurches in the country, were built on a principle called homogeneous, uh, um, homogeneous principle, though, homogeneity. Um, Saddleback, Saddleback, Saddleback Sam, anybody remember? 
spelled exam, if you read Warren's first book, The Purpose Driven Church, he states very clearly, we are not interested in reaching anybody but this profile. And it was basically predominantly upper middle class, tech savvy white people. It was not a secret. It was a best selling book across the world. Because the whole point is, that's what we can do effectively, let someone else do something else effectively. By the way, both Bill Hybels, the founder of Willow Creek, and uh, Rick Warren, about 10 years ago, publicly repented of that. The problem is they did that after their churches had grown to about 20,000 each. So when somebody now wants to, quote, just grow a church, and he looks around at models of growing the church, not what the church is trying to say now, what does that person see? Homogeneity. Stay with one type of person. So the more diverse we are, the harder it is to grow. Not easier. That does not mean we're going to change it. We're making that very clear to all the candidates. We will not back off of that, period. So get ready for some difficulty if you plan to come here because it ain't going to be what you think it is. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Um, there's all sorts of systems for it, and people in churches that size are constantly going to seminars and conferences trying to figure it out. I mean, like I said, I did this 15 years, um, and I don't think they ever quite get it. They put on seminars about church growth. Yeah. And I said, why do you want to grow anymore? Right. The assumption goes back to, I raise my hand, I say I believe I'm safe. If that's true, the more people I get to raise my hand, the more people I've just helped come to heaven. So, I mean, it really does come from that, that old revival uh, mentality of um, that's all it takes. But what happens is the more people, and it, and it really kicks in right around 1,000. By 1,500, you're dealing with it real heavy. If you go over 5,000, you're overwhelmed. Look at the longevity of staff in large churches. They go through staff like tissue paper. Yeah, yeah. You're you're processing people constantly, and you don't have a choice. Okay, I'm, that part doesn't bother me honestly. You're you've, you're doing the same ratio that we do, but you're X number of times bigger, so you're going to do X number of times more. The part that concerns me is. How do you truly help those people be disciples? Yeah. Oh, not a chance. Not a chance. But in fairness, neither does any other small church that I'm aware of, and neither did we for years and years and years. Um, I mean, it was my idea, and I spent 35 years in ministry before it dawned on me, maybe we should talk to people about this. Duh! <laughs> mm -hmm. 
if you don't have the means to do that, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and I think that, that the mega churches are developing lay staff. I see lots of things on paper. I've consulted with all sorts of churches because, again, when you're when you're part of a large church like that, you have a tendency to, to communicate with other people who are also, and you're constantly looking for ways to do what you're doing effectively because it is hard. Um, I was in a very unique ministry, um, not even what most people were in for 10 of the 15 years I was in Beaverton, and I still had to do that because there was just no models for it. I mean, everything we did, we were the first ones trying it. And everybody's asking us, and, you know, literally people want us to put on seminars, write books. I'm like, are you kidding? I have a clue. <laughs> Try to figure this out. But, but there are reasons, and they're not all bad reasons. Uh, there's research uh, that's done internationally, though, that actually indicates that when a congregation gets bigger than about 1,000, in almost every major uh, aspect of ministry, they become less effective and increasingly so as they grow. And I think that's the reason we're seeing a new phenomenon today called the satellite church. And so most megachurches today, instead of just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in one place, um, are kind of splitting the difference between planting churches and not. So what they do is they put a, a thousand people over here, but they're still part of this congregation. They, there's, they, they still run it. Organizationally, um, there's, there, everything's still connected. And then they do another one here, and another one here, and another one here, and another one here. And the idea is that they're trying to then make a big church smaller, but still be a big church. And I'm not entirely opposed to it. I, th- I think there's some problems inherent to it. Uh, but it is certainly easier to try to truly make disciples out of 1,000 people than 10,000. I mean, it's just, when you're 10,000, you're processing people, period. Um, when you're 1,000, you're tempted to be doing that, but you're obviously able to do a lot more personal stuff. Okay. And the idea of then, well, we, we just divide it up and we have a minister for this 100 and a minister for this 100 and like that. I, I, can, I can tell you probably 100 different programs that are like that, and they don't work. Because people who come to those large churches don't come so they can be part of a small group of 100. That's not, that's not what the vibe is about. So it just doesn't happen. So, okay, let's, let's move on with chapter 11 here. What then, in verse 7, what then? What, because of what we just talked about, because if, if it's by grace, it's not on the basis of works so that the gift is still a gift. So what? What then is basically like, so what? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were, not cho- or those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, it's pretty important that we had a little discussion earlier. How does God harden? Yeah. Does God say, you now have sclerosis of the spirit. You may not believe. No, what God does is say, okay, you want to keep sinning? Fine. You want to keep doing it by your own works and try to be righteous on your own? 
Fine. That's how the spirit of stupor comes. Because every single time in scripture that we see not just the statement of it, but a description of God hardening someone's heart, that's what's happening. God is not saying, you may not believe, I won't let you. God is saying, you won't. So, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Let them there, uh, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Now, who's they? Yeah. The whole, the whole thing is about where is Israel in all of this? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To make them jealous. This is the cool part. Because <laughs> Paul's saying, see, the whole point is, hopefully the Jews will look at the Gentiles and go, wait a minute. And what part of this too? And some did. Many did. Paul did. But that doesn't mean they all did. Okay? Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you uh, who are Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. What is ministry? It's one of the words I ask you to look up. Which, which service? Because there's several services, several words. What's the word used? The Greek word. Okay, diakonia. Because diakonia is the service that is performed um, and actually became an office in the early church. When the leaders, in the, in the first case the apostles said, look, God told us to do this stuff. We're not going to do that stuff. So, here's some faithful people. They actually said, go find faithful people. They brought them to him. and said, okay, here's faithful people. You guys do this. And he actually handed over, the, the, the apostles handed over all the money to him. You know, in the world, that was the opposite. No, no, the ones with the real power are going to hold on to the money. But no, the real leaders said, we don't want anything to do with the money. You guys deal with it. But they then delegated that authority. What would be the old English word for uh, a deacon or a diaconos? You all know it. You just don't know you know it. Minister. And that's how people like me came about. Because I don't run the place. I am delegated authority to do certain tasks by the people the Spirit has given the authority to. So that's why I emphasize so heavily the use of the term minister as opposed to pastor. I don't, I don't mind the word pastor if it's used appropriately, but we use it for a title of glorification. I know people who say, but I'm a pastor because they, somebody ordained them. Show me ordination in the Bible, by the way. There's, there, good luck with that one. Um, we stopped doing it. We, we don't ordain here because it's not real. So you've got these people walking around saying, I'm a pastor. They're not, pastor means shepherd. They're not shepherding anybody. But because they've got some status, 
they think they, that's important and they have this title. Minister means servant. And, and according to the Lord, that's much more important. Because uh, they're wrong. <laughs> uh, well, okay, to be fair, the word apostle means somebody who is given a mission. So if they're thinking small a, apostle, the New Testament apostolos, is really our modern day missionary. I mean, missionary would be an excellent translation of that word. Unfortunately, most of the ones I've heard are thinking big A, and they're wanting to then claim authority and power, which, once again, I'm pretty sure is exactly the opposite of what Jesus said we're supposed to be doing. And I see nothing in Scripture that says that the, what we call the big A apostles, which were the 12 who were chosen to launch the church. The church has been launched, folks. The scripture is here. That authority was never given to anyone else. And we have the Pentecostal version of it, we have the Renewal Movement version of it, and we've got the Catholic version of it. All of those are based on the teaching that that apostleship is passed down in some form of of hereditary um, uh, transmission. And none of that's biblical. So... Uh, anything beyond that, I'm going to wax cynical if I haven't already, and if I have, I apologize. Um, well, yes and no. Um, you're probably referring to Peter's little speech at the beginning of Acts where he decides they need to choose Judas's successor. A guy named Matthias ended up being the choice. But there's nothing in that passage that indicates Peter was doing anything except jumping the gun. But uh, that's the only place where there are actual requirements stipulated. That's where that comes from. Yeah, that all comes from Peter's little speech there. Yeah. And, I mean, that's fine, except I personally don't believe Peter was ever given the authority to do that. I think Paul was always intended to be the new 12th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because God's in yeah. yeah. Well, I think Jesus himself chose him, as he chose the others. So those 12, what we call a capital A, and I, that's, of course that's our distinction, but it was those recognized as having been given an authority that others were not given. Okay? So they, they exercised apostolic authority all over the church. And when it was doubted, God gave them the ability to back up what they were saying. Also, something I've never seen in anybody else who claims apostleship. Yeah, yeah, you get kind of mired in when you ask questions like that. But. I know I shouldn't do that. Okay, um, we are. Where? Yeah, except that's part of a sentence, so let's go back to 13. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles in as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. Because remember, Paul was ironically, and I think this is totally God's sense of humor, Pharisee of the Pharisees, 
who would not even walk into the house of a Gentile. And the ministry he was given is, you're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and, and he spent his life doing that and uh, having people like him try to kill him for doing that. I magnify my ministry, my, my diaconate. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So here's Paul's attitude. It's not, oh yeah, all the Jews are fine. I want to do anything I can to get them motivated to see this and, and, and hopefully some of them can be saved. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. Um, now, by the way, we get into the branches thing, so let's see, do I have time? I'm going to read just a little bit more and then answer that question. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and become partaker with them of the rich root and olive tree, of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root. It is the root who supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your, and this is a weird translation because unbelief is opistis. And No, wait a minute, it's not. That's why it's translated that way. Uh, verse 20. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, no, it is. It is. There's another word that's used in, by Paul for unbelief, or translated unbelief. That's a different word. And I think I just gave you a hint on the next study guide. Um, this is opistia, but, but you, he says, they were broken off for their unbelief. And back to where I was. There we are, verse 20. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith, which is the same word. So, you know, to me it should have been, they were broken off because of their lack of faith, but you stand by your faith. Or they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your belief. Because it's exactly the same word with the letter alpha, which negates it, just like our letter A does in English. Do not be conceited, but fear. Reverence, awe, healthy respect, and yes, even fear in the sense of a child, for example, who knows if he does this, I'm going to get a whooping. If I do it, I'm going to get a whooping. You know? He has a fear because he knows there is a, re, a, uh, a punishment, if you will, for what he might do. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If, notice, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So being, being cut off doesn't mean they stay cut off. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these things 
Or will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, let's stop there. And that's verse 24. Now, the question here is about the tree. We're going to pick up the shut up and disobedience next week uh, when we finish this. And then next week we'll also, we're, we're caught up enough that we should be able to finish chapter 12 easily and be totally on schedule. The olive tree, like any other tree, um, could grow wild or grow cultivated. Going cultivated, it means um, you, you don't have the mixtures of DNA and so forth. Uh, best example I can give today is wild roses and, and uh, cultivated roses. We grow some cultivated roses, and every now and then a wild one springs up at our house. And they're not what we're trying to grow. And they can actually, even without being grafted in, they can actually take over a plant and turn it wild. Um, and now the plant's not what we wanted. And in this case, it's not going to produce the kind of olives that they want. So how do you deal with that? Well, if you've got a branch producing the wild olives, you cut it off. And then you don't have to worry about the wild olives. And you simply keep doing that until they're gone. But, on the other hand, you can actually graft a good branch onto a wild tree and grow good olives. Because it is the root that's providing the sustenance and the strength. Okay? Now, by the way, go all the way back to the Gospels, where Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. So, the, the root, the body, is Jesus. The rest of us are we're the branches. We're either grafted in or we're torn off. The Jews were not producing the fruit they were supposed to be producing, in other words, faith. They got cut off. The ones who didn't do that, only those were cut off. Okay? Paul wasn't cut off. And the Gentiles were grafted in, who had faith. And Paul says to the Gentiles, now don't get cocky. Don't think that just because you were grafted in, you're better than anybody else, or for that matter, that you stay grafted in, because if you become like they, then the same thing's going to happen. And if they become like you, if they who do not have faith come to faith, God's capable of grafting them back in. So what is the olive tree? What is it symbolizing? Christian life, Christianity, the church, the body of Christ. And in this sense, I think those are all synonymous. And so... Are, are the Jews who had no faith part of that tree? No. No. They got cut off. The word severity, by the way, means to cut off. Literally. I mean, it's, uh, severity is, uh, it's, again, an interesting translation. If they, if they translated it literally, it would be very blunt, but it would also be very clear what he's saying. So those got cut off. But if they come to faith, they can be branched or, or uh, grafted back in. Now, I've seen this, by the way. This probably don't know that I can do it, but I've seen people, even on plants that we owned, graft. And it's a fascinating process because you basically slice the, the, the branch or the, the, the tree, the bush, whatever, create an opening. And then you slice, um, and it's always diagonal for some reason, you slice the, the branch you're trying to graft in. You put them together and then you tie them together forcing 
the fibers to grow together, forcing the sap to go from the, the base and the roots into this new branch. And the, the healing, just like slicing the bark of a tree and it heals, it heals as one. So it, it grafts back in and becomes part of the bush or part of the tree. So it's a fascinating kind of thing, but it's something they had all seen, whereas most of us, we've never seen that kind of thing happen, so we read it and it's like, what? So what Paul is trying to say to them is, look, the body of Christ, the church, the people who belong to God, that's, that's the tree. The life is coming from God, not from you. You're a branch. You, you suck the life. <laughs> you draw the life. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm, I'm uh, well, in that case, the branch meant the, the bigger base of, of the tree. You're the, uh, no, I'm the vine. You're the branch. The vine being the base. And so I'm the one the life comes from. So if you abide in me, he said in the Gospels, which means you live in me, you're, you're grafted in, then you'll have life. But if you don't, then you don't. It's just that simple. Does that make it? Does that answer your question? I think so. Okay? Okay. The Jews, if, if the tree is considered the people of God, which is another phrase for this, um, then the Jews were the people of God until they didn't have faith. Because they were God's chosen people. Right, and then when they, yeah, but then they when when they proceeded without faith on the basis of works, Ishmael instead of Isaac, they get cut off. Jesus said the same thing. Look through Jesus' teaching; how many times he emphasized faith, over and over and over and over. And the problem was that the people who were in power were emphasizing obedience to law. Jesus didn't say disobey the law. He just said, I'm going to save you. Absolutely. In fact, he said to his followers, your righteousness with regard to the law has to be better. It has to exceed theirs, the Pharisees. You're not, you're not released from the demands of the law. You need to exceed them by fulfilling the spirit of it. Hence, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No. Love your enemy. Because the hate your enemy was their invention. God wants love, period. That's the fulfillment of the law. And those of us who believe then respond in faith by attempting to live that way. With varying degrees of success. Okay. We'll pick up on uh, 25. Once again, I'm going to take a picture of that just to be sure I remember it. And see you all next week. Absolutely. And next week we get really fun because we're in Chapter 12. And Chapter 12 is just fun. It is. <laughs>